Hey, welcome to Whitefields Community Church Sermon Extra. Great to have you with us this week. Once again, I'm here with Pastor Nick Katie, who's the pastor of Whitefields Community Church here in Longmont, Colorado. And uh, we are back in our series called Desiring the Kingdom, and we've been looking at the books of First and Second Kings. And, you know, a lot of people have comment, you know, what can you get out of the Old Testament? What can you get out of these books and looking at all these kings? What what does it have to do with us? And people have been very surprised at how much God has to say to us in the Old Testament and how much it reveals to us of his nature and how much it reveals to us of Christ and all that God wanted to do through Jesus on our behalf, you know. So if you missed these sermons, any of these sermons, get over there, uh, whitefieldschurch.com. Um, very good stuff. And you can download this past Sunday sermon. You can go to any of your favorite podcast platforms and you can uh, download any of the uh, sermons from this series. And if you would, rate and review. It's just great for, for uh, you know getting our content out there and people are asking questions about these things that are life-changing. We have answers from the Bible for them, Christ-centered, gospel-centered answers for them. So rate and review on any of your favorite podcast uh, platforms forms, you know, give us a thumbs up, give us a like, uh, give us five stars, whatever it asks you to do. And uh, that would be really good uh, for this channel. But this past week, we were uh, covering 2 Kings chapter uh, 14. And uh, and I have lost my place here and I found it. And so 2 Kings chapter 14 and the title of the sermon was that which is true life. And that came from a verse in the New Testament. Yeah, that's 1 Timothy chapter 6, where Paul tells Timothy, a young pastor, he tells him what to do with the wealthy in his congregation, what to speak into their lives, not to trust in the, you know, the, the unstable wealth, but to build up true treasures through good works by, you know, pursuing God and, and doing good works. And he says, so that they may take hold of that, which is truly life. Yeah, and I think that was kind of the main thrust of your sermon on Sunday, just the idea of we can have full bank accounts, but completely empty souls. And uh, we start out in chapter 14 of 2 Kings looking at King Amaziah, and uh, there was a lot more to the story that you weren't able to get to in, in the sermon on Sunday. Yeah, that's one of the really interesting things about First and Second Kings is that you can also kind of parallel read or reference First and Second Chronicles. And a lot of times, uh, what I think is funny in the book of Chronicles, that it'll say, aren't all these things written in the books of the kings, the, the chronicles or the annals of the kings? And so it's really <laughs> kind of like references that, uh, which is pretty funny, but it Sometimes it'll give you like a little bit more detail. And in some cases, that's really helpful. That's true uh, in chapter 14. It's also true of the next king we're going to look at in chapter 15. But uh, for chapter 14, remember, this is Amaziah, king of Judah. That's the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is. And we read in 2 Kings 14, like we talked about on Sunday, that he amassed this army and he goes down to take back some of the cities of Edom, that Edom had declared independence in the past, but they felt that some of those cities rightly belonged to Judah. So he goes down there and takes them. Now, what we read in 2 Chronicles 25 that's really kind of helpful information. It not only does it tell us that he had 300,000 soldiers, actually at one point he had 400,000 soldiers. And what, if you want to go read it, you, you, it's not a very long passage, but it is interesting. It says that he got 300 soldiers from Judah and he also hired 100,000 mercenaries from 
Israel, the northern kingdom. But then a prophet spoke to him and said, no, 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 don't do that because the people of the northern kingdom, they're compromised, they're idolaters. Now that's an interesting thing considering what he does next. So he says, okay, I will listen to the word of the prophet. I will, you know, let go of these 100,000 hired soldiers, mercenaries from the northern kingdom. And we'll just have 300,000, which is, as I mentioned, uh, even today, that would be amongst the larger armies in the world. And so he goes and uh, takes Edom and he's so, you know, so easily defeats them and is feeling so good about himself that uh, here's what it says in Second Chronicles. Before he picks a fight with the Northern Kingdom and incites what could have been a really bad civil war. Um, what he does, it says that from the Edomites, he took their pagan gods and their statues, their idols, and he brought them back with him to his home in Jerusalem. And he set them up in his house. And not only did he set them up, kind of, you might say, okay, what are these trophies or what are they? No, it says he set them up and he worshiped them and he made sacrifices to them. And, um, and, you know, did the whole thing. So this prophet who had warned him before not to hire these hundred thousand mercenaries from Israel comes back and says, he says, what are you doing? And he, he says, Ye, God, the Lord Yahweh just gave you a victory. And now you're worshiping the gods of the people you just defeated. Like, how does that make any sense at all? But it says that Amaziah refused to repent of this. And therefore the prophet told him, because you have refused to repent of this and you've gotten haughty and built up and prideful in your heart and you, you've turned away from the Lord who gave you this victory and you're not listening to him. Therefore, the Lord is going to destroy you, which is the, what then happens in the next part. And I think that's an interesting factor in the story because you look at the fact that Amaziah legitimately had a very big army, 300,000 soldiers, and it might have been stronger than the army of Israel. And so how is it that with this massive army, he loses this battle and and almost loses his life if it wasn't for the mercy of the king of Israel? Well, the reason is because God was set to kind of put him in his place, teach him something and, and humble him because he wouldn't humble himself. That's always the great danger, right? It says that, uh, you know, you can, uh, the God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And in some cases, if we're unwilling to humble ourselves before God, in some cases, God will uh, do things to humble us, not, not to be uh, spiteful, but because it's important, it's good, it's needed that we would be humble. Yeah. And that kind of, you know, continues to follow in the theme of full hearts, uh, I mean, full bank accounts and empty hearts, uh, you know, and empty souls. And, and it seems like these kings, as we have studied many, many of them, God continued to bless them mm -hmm. and, and continued to bless them even in their wickedness and continued to, to, to take care of Israel during this time. And, and I think that was uh, uh, the great example of Jeroboam II. Uh, and you weren't able to talk about that either on Sunday. Yeah, it's such an anomaly. I mentioned this, that um, here's Jeroboam II. His kingdom is maybe the, the second largest kingdom in Israel's history after Solomon. Because Solomon came in, you remember the kingdom was at its height, reached all the way to the Euphrates River, um, so far east and so far around there. And then after Solomon, of course, everything splits up. The, the kingdoms both become weaker and poorer and people take their land from them, especially those outer parts. And so Jeroboam has so much success um, militarily, um, financially, in all these ways. And yet he's a wicked person. 
And what's really interesting is that if you follow the, the story in the timeline, it's only 30 years after the height of Jeroboam's kingdom that they're going to be conquered by and, and taken into exile into Assyria. And that's coming up in the, the following weeks as we, as we continue in the story. But uh, it, is, it is really interesting, isn't it, that we tend to think, well, it's how could God bless someone who's so evil? Does God bless those who, who do wicked things and who don't love him? And I think the answer would be that sometimes the wicked do prosper. David talks about this in the Psalms. He laments it. He asks the question, God, why do the wicked prosper? And he says, here I am. I'm doing everything you called me to do. I'm getting chased around by this guy who wants to kill me. How is this fair? And, um, you know, one of the things that, um, I would say is really helpful for us to think about this whole topic of money is that, uh, you know, we often think in terms of rich or poor, but God thinks more in terms of righteous or unrighteous. So think about the, you could put those two on a grid, right? So say one axis of the grid uh, says rich and poor, the other axis says righteous or unrighteous. So it creates four quadrants on a graph. And you could put it this way, that uh, those four quadrants would then be this. You have your righteous rich, and you have your righteous poor. And you have your unrighteous rich, and you have your unrighteous poor. And you could say that the book of Proverbs talks about these as well. You know, so you have some people who are rich, um, and part of the reason they're rich is because they've honored the Lord with their wealth. They've been good stewards. They've been faithful people. They've been godly. They go to work every day. They pay their taxes. They don't do things that cause them to go to jail or get fines, which helps you not lose money unnecessarily. Um, and, and then on the other hand, you have people who are unrighteous and rich. These are people who um, they, maybe they've gotten their wealth in unrighteous ways. Um, maybe the reason they stay wealthy is because they exploit others, like we talked about with Amos in, in his day. Um, on the other hand, you have people who are poor and yet they're righteous. Maybe they, they serve the Lord, they work hard, but they're a teacher, right? And they're just, it's just a fact of life that you're probably not going to get rich being an elementary school teacher, but you might love the Lord and walk with him and you'd be serving him in that vocation and helping people. Uh, I've known a lot of people who worked in, you know, Christian education and you're just, it's just not an industry where you make a lot of money. We know a lot of people like in Ukraine, uh, in Hungary and in other parts of the world. I mean, what we call actually the majority world, you can work 50 hours a week and do everything honestly and work hard, be innovative even. And the fact is that most likely you're not going to get ahead because the system's a bit stacked against you. Now, on the other hand, you have people who are unrighteous and poor, which means that part of the reason they're poor is because they've done unrighteous things and made bad decisions. And that has led to them uh, being poor, you know, whether it's laziness or whether it's um, sin, you know, so, so we want to think in these terms, it should not be our goal to be rich or poor. Our goal should be to be righteous before God. And, you know, it reminds me of what Paul says in Philippians chapter four, where he says that um, in all things, in poverty and in uh, wealth, I have learned to be content because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yeah, no, that's a great thought to to bring uh, bring up. And, and what also came to my mind as we were talking was just, you know, we should not forsake the patient. I mean, we should not... Uh, 
think that God's patience gives us license mm. to 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 dive into all of these things. So I think that God's not watching, or that He's not, you know, that at you know with Jeroboam, you know, is what he said thirty years mm-hmm. where the hammer fell, you yeah. know, and the the complacency, you know, that we we equate God's you know patience with God's complacency with our sin, and and I think that's what a lot of these kings fell into. Like God's not judging, so I'm going to keep doing. And God did bring judgment, and that's important for us to understand, too, that God's been so patient. It's one of his great characters, one of the great uh, characteristics, one of the, the great things we see in the Old Testament, you know, over and over again is God's patience for his people and God's patience for us. And I think that's a lesson we certainly can take away away from that, you know, and that we, we are storing up our treasures in heaven and not here on the earth and so yeah just a great great thoughts to end on and and just you know there's so much in uh first second kings just so many stories you can dive into so many lessons to be learned and can't always cover it on a sunday morning um but you know if you've missed any of our sermon uh desiring the kingdom get over there to whitefieldschurch.com or any of your favorite um, podcast platforms and uh, you can download it there and uh, subscribe thumbs up uh, ring the bell And I look forward to seeing you next week. God bless.